Hi everyone, welcome to the Ali Houston Transforms podcast. I'm Ali Houston, health coach, food innovator and scientist. I survived years of weight problems, mental health issues, autoimmune diseases, surgery and even cancer. I turned my health around by diving into the scientific research, changing what I eat and what I do. I founded Paleo Canteen and the Ali Houston Transforms podcast to not only share this life-changing information, but to engage in a process of discovery and illumination with my guests and all of you. This podcast is made possible by paleocanteen.co.uk. Head over there after the episode. You can find a link to download your free guide, Six Pillars to Achieve Your Healthy Weight. Transforming into being healthy is so much more than just a list of foods. It's a rich process of becoming that never stops. Head over to paleocanteen.co.uk or follow the link in the show notes to find out what I mean. And if you find this episode useful or interesting, please share it far and wide, or even just with a friend. Thanks, and enjoy the show. And we're recording. And I'm delighted to have with me today Chris Palmer, MD, who's a Harvard psychiatrist working at the Interface of Metabolism and Mental Disorders. He's also the author of Brain Energy, which is coming out in November this year, 2022. Welcome. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, you know, I've been, I've been following what you've been doing for some time, and I was saying just before we started how important mental health is for me. Anyone who's followed me for a while will know that. Um, and I love what Georgia Ede, uh, you know, a fellow psychiatrist, said that um, studies have shown conclusively that the head is in fact part of the body. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk a bit about your background and how you came to where you are just now. Um, yeah, it's a super long story, but so I am a psychiatrist at McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical School. <clears throat> I have been there since 1995, so 27 years now. Um, and, you know, my, my regular job is, uh, I actually do a lot of things. So I am the director of a continuing education department. So I oversee educational conferences for mental health professionals from all over the world. Um, I have also conducted neuroscience research for about 20 years, um, focusing in particular on the issues of addiction and sleep, um, but also their relationship to other mental disorders. I have always maintained a practice of psychiatry as well. And the people that I tend to work with tend to be treatment resistant uh, patients. So. I almost never see anybody off the street with new onset depression or even new onset schizophrenia. I see people after they have been in and out of hospitals, they've usually seen at least four or more mental health professionals before they get to me and are not better. And I, I see them in that case, oftentimes they've tried dozens, sometimes They've tried dozens and dozens of medications. Some of them have had most of the treatments that we have to offer. And uh, 
And then it's my job to try to sort through all of that and figure out what can we possibly do to help this person get better. Um, my career took a little bit of a turn. Um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's well over 20 years ago, I began using low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets in patients with treatment resistant depression, anxiety, personality disorders. Um, but I, I was, wasn't really publishing that work. I wasn't out on the speaking circuit about that work. Um, at that point, uh, you know, even today, low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets are kind of taboo in the general medical space and general medical field. And 20 years ago, they were even more so taboo. Um, and, you know, as some people in this space know, there are physicians who have lost their licenses over prescribing low carb and keto diets. So I didn't want to join them. Uh, I was just kind of keeping it quiet on the down low, helping patients one at a time. That all changed for me about seven years ago when I was helping one of my patients with schizoaffective disorder, which is a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. When I, you know, put him on a ketogenic diet to help him lose weight. Even though I had been using this for depression, anxiety, um, I would, if you had asked me at that time, do you think this could help schizophrenia? I would have said, no way, not, not a chance. Schizophrenia is a serious brain disorder, debilitating hallucinations, delusions, people are disabled, our treatments are awful. Um, nobody knows what to do for these people. Will a change in diet help those symptoms? Not a chance. Not a chance, I would have said. Um, even though I'd been using it for 15 years at that point and seeing it work for treatment-resistant depression. You know, depression is very different than schizophrenia. Um, and lo and behold, uh, I watched, you know, over the first two, three months of this patient starting the ketogenic diet, I watched a progression of events. He became much less depressed, less sedated, started waking up, started making more eye contact. I wasn't changing any of his meds. His meds were exactly the same. All he was doing was the ketogenic diet. He began losing weight. And within about six to eight weeks, he started spontaneously telling me that the voices that he heard every day for the last 13 years were starting to go away. Um, and that his longstanding paranoid delusions were going away. Um, and that he started realizing, you know what, I don't think those things are true. And they probably never were. Like now that I'm thinking about it, they sound kind of crazy, right? Um, like, well, maybe I had schizophrenia. And that's why I was thinking those kind of crazy thoughts. Like what, what's going on? What's happening? You know, at that point, I was really dumbfounded and flabbergasted. I actually had to, actually had to ask some colleagues who were working with the same patient. I asked this patient's father, like, "Are you guys seeing what I'm seeing? Because I'm having trouble believing what I'm seeing. Um, this this does not happen in psychiatry." They were all equally dumbfounded. Like, "Yeah, what what's going on here? He's getting better. Like, something's. This is like a miracle. What the hell is happening here?" Um, I quickly dove into the medical literature, found out about the ketogenic diet and its use in 
neurology as a treatment for epilepsy, which I did not know really at that point, even though I'd used it, I was using it as like the Atkins diet, low carb, weight loss, maybe diabetes. I, I knew about, I definitely, it was there's no maybe about it. I knew about it solidly as a diabetes treatment because I used it with both my parents for their diabetes. Um, but uh, I, I didn't realize that it was used as an epilepsy treatment and that it could stop seizures. And so that led me to using it with more and more patients. It was, it was effective with most of the patients that I was trying it with who could actually do the diet. I started publishing case reports. I helped a research team in Ecuador. We did a pilot study of two patients with schizophrenia there. Um, published more case reports, uh, you know, consulted with Dr. Eric Westman about one of his patients who had long-term remission of schizophrenia. And that really kind of launched a very different career for me. And um, but I'm, I still have my day job. I actually don't get paid a penny for anything related to the ketogenic diet. I, this is all just extra work I do. Um, but uh, that has been my claim to fame and things have really taken off since then. I'll stop there because I could just keep talking and then you will <laughs> never get a word in edgewise for the whole hour. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, it's fantastic to hear about, about that patient and about, you know, the application of the ketogenic diet to treatment resistant depression as well. Um, you know, as you say, it's been used for a hundred years or so on, on epilepsy. Um, less so now, I think, because of the drugs available. And I think something like um, a third of treatment-resistant epileptics do really well on the ketogenic diet. I don't think it works for, for everyone. But um, you already anticipated the question of mine. You know, I could, I could have asked you about the most sort of miraculous seeming transformation you'd seen. But of course, we see spontaneous remission in individuals of all sorts of illnesses like cancer even all that side of things kind of spurred on you know immunological therapies where uh the original case maybe someone's been infected by a virus or something and then their immune system has done something which has resulted in remission you know the anecdotes are, are inspiring and of course highly suggestive of a cure but sometimes maybe um consistency is more important and you suggested that treatment resistant depression seems to be consistently um, uh, responsive to a ketogenic diet what about schizophrenia what about others have you have you noticed that there's the same consistency does it vary in consistency what do you think so in my experience it does vary in consistency the um the, dis the two disorders that I have had the best luck with, but it may just be my sample bias, you know, just the patients that I happen to be seeing. Um, but the, the two disorders that seem to respond best uh, are schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, it can dramatically reduce symptoms. And I have seen many cases now of remission um, where people are even able to get, they're able to get off medications and remain 
symptom free. Um, you know, I call that remission because to the best of my knowledge, everyone that I've worked with or that I know of has had to remain on some kind of a special diet. They don't always remain on a ketogenic diet, but they certainly remain on usually a low carb diet, something. Um, and they sometimes the symptoms will start to show signs of coming back, mild mood changes or sleep changes or something else. And then they get back on the ketogenic diet for a little bit. And so from that standpoint, I don't use the word cure because a cure would mean they could go back and eat the standard American diet, just like everyone else who doesn't have schizophrenia and they would be cured. And I have not yet seen that. It's possible that may come and it may happen. Um, I have to say with chronic depression, I have had several patients who did not get better. Um, and I think that that is because depression in particular um, is a complex disorder that can have many different root causes. Um, and they can be biological, psychological, or social. And for some people, the, the psychological and social causes um, are profound. So for some people, they, they have no friends, they don't have jobs, they're disabled, they don't respect themselves as a result. They don't feel like they live up to society's expectations of what a human being is supposed to be. They have chronically low self-esteem. And the ketogenic diet may not address those issues. And, um, and if it doesn't address those issues, that person may still have depression. Um, it's not to say that it can't work for depression because I have seen it have dramatic effects in treatment-resistant depression. Um, I've even seen patients get hypomanic from the diet. Uh, which is kind of the opposite of depression. They get really happy. It's like, it's, and it's something that happens commonly with antidepressant treatments and even, even a treatment like ECT. Um, we, with those biological treatments, we not uncommonly see hypomania as part of the treatment pattern. And in, in my view, that makes me take the ketogenic diet actually much more seriously. It's like, well, this is doing exactly what antidepressants and even ECT are doing. It's a biological treatment. Um, we know that we know a tremendous amount about this diet from the neuroscience literature and from neurology um, and the epilepsy field. So we know that this diet is changing neurotransmitter systems. It's decreasing inflammation and in particular brain inflammation. It's you know, improving insulin signaling, um, improving insulin resistance in the brain even. Um, it's changing the gut microbiome and uh, having potentially beneficial effects through those gut microbiome changes. Uh, and it's doing many, many other things. So. Uh, we have lots of very plausible biological reasons why this diet might actually be alleviating symptoms of serious mental disorders. Yeah, the, you've anticipated more of my questions. Um, around schizophrenia, you, you don't want to use the word cure, and I guess um, I understand why, but 
if the definition of schizophrenia was uh, an interface, a negative outcome from the interface between the standard American diet and genetically predisposed individuals, then you, you would be okay to call it a cure, I would imagine. But is that a fair definition of schizophrenia? I don't think it is. I, you know, schizophrenia, all the mental disorders, um, schizophrenia included, have numerous causes. And we know a lot, are numerous risk factors is what I should say. We know a lot of those risk factors. So for instance, it can be as simple as if your mother had an infection in the second trimester of her pregnancy with you, that puts you at elevated risk for developing schizophrenia. If you then went on as a five-year-old to develop a severe infection with whatever virus, a bacteria, whatever, and you were hospitalized for that infection, you are now much, much more likely to develop schizophrenia. You're also more likely to develop lots of other mental disorders like OCD, like autism, even at that later age, um, and other disorders. But schizophrenia is among the disorders that you are more likely to develop. Having Your mother having an infection when she's pregnant with you and you developing an infection when you are a child has nothing to do with diet, as far as we can tell. Now, some in the diet community might want to say, well, if they were eating a healthy diet, they wouldn't have ever gotten an infection to begin with. I wish life was so simple. I know lots of people who are keto, low carb, who have gotten COVID, for instance. Me, it, twice. <laughs> so, so. I personally do not believe that following a proper diet, whatever proper diet you think that is, confers immortality and invincibility. I just don't believe that. I'm waiting to see the person who is immortal and without any disease whatsoever because they are following the perfect diet. I wish life was that simple. I wish medicine was that simple. It's not. Um, so you know, and then you add to it things like bullying and teasing, abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse as a child. Um, those actually confer risk for not just anxiety, depression, PTSD. They actually increase the chances that somebody will develop psychosis. So, so if you have this kid whose you know, mother had an infection, he had an infection, and oh, he also lives in a really crappy home and he's getting beaten up and the kids at school bully and tease him, he's really developing lots of risk factors for you know, developing certainly depression, anxiety, PTSD, but also schizophrenia. And those things have nothing to do with diet. He could be keto and kids could still be mean to him. He could be keto and his father could still beat him up. Keto has nothing to do with whether you're in, living in a hostile world. So, um, so there are lots of things that go into the development of mental disorders. But diet is an important one. I don't, I don't wanna, I don't, I mean, that's kind of my claim to fame. I'm not disowning it. I'm not, but, but I don't want people to come away thinking Chris Palmer says a keto diet can cure everyone because I'm not at all saying that. Um, what I'm saying is that there are lots of things that go into the development of mental disorders. Dietary interventions 
can be really powerful. And I look at it very differently. You know, a lot of people think it, if, it, if going keto helps a disorder, then it must be the carbohydrates that were the problem. So if everybody just got rid of carbs, the world would be happy and healthy. I don't, I don't see it that way. I actually see the ketogenic diet as a metabolic intervention. It is profoundly changing metabolism throughout the body and even in your gut. And those changes can confer profound benefits and adaptations to the way your body and brain function. And so I think about the ketogenic diet in particular more than almost more than really any other diet, more than like the Mediterranean diet or vegan diet or vegetarian or paleo. Those diets are really more about health, what, which foods are healthy and which ones aren't. I actually see the ketogenic diet as something very different in a league of its own. It is mimicking the fasting state. It's ch profoundly changing metabolism. And that can have tremendous benefits on brain function. Yes, I guess um, your observation that it works quite reliably for schizophrenia and <clears throat> perhaps not so reliably for uh, treatment-resistant depression. Is that, just to clarify, that's what you, that's what you said earlier? Yes. Yeah. That, um, that it seems like the component of cause might be... Um, more likely attributable to diet for schizophrenia. I mean, one could say the there's a confounder in the in the in the prediction that if someone has adverse childhood events, that they're more likely to develop schizophrenia. It might be because that they're more likely to binge eat junk food because they feel like shit all the time mentally. I mean, it's just it, it would just be a theory, but you know, I'm thinking about papers like you know, if, is schizophrenia rare if grain is rare? You know, this observation from the 80s that um, in somewhere in the South Sea Islands, or maybe it was Papua New Guinea, um, you know, the rate prior to westernization of uh, schizophrenia was like um, about more than a 50th less. So there was maybe two cases where in the West you might expect 120 or something. And then after Westernization, the rates came up. And of course, one might say, well, maybe there was abuse, societal breakdown and so on. So there's a confounder there too. But there's pretty good interventional studies about removing not carbs, but gluten. And I wonder if that's something that you've looked into much with, um, with schizophrenia particularly um, and Maybe we could talk about gut health after that. Well, it's a perfect segue into gut health. So, um, you know, so if, if gluten is a problem for a person, it usually is going to relate to gut health. So it, um, you know, the, the extreme form of gluten intolerance is called celiac disease. Um, it's an autoimmune disorder in which people really do not tolerate gluten and their GI tract can become inflamed. Um, in response to gluten. Um, the inflammation in the GI tract um, can lead to permeability. A lot of people call it leaky gut. Um, and that has a whole host of problems in and of itself. But the, inf the inflammation itself is a major problem. So inflammation on its own is a problem 
to human health. Um, and, you know, I cited the two studies, you know, if a mother has inflammation that can adversely affect her child. If a child has inflammation at, at a young age that can adversely affect brain function shortly thereafter within three months of hospitalization for an infection. So if gluten is causing inflammation, the inflammation on its own is a problem. But then you, you add on to that, that the inflammation is happening in the GI tract. And the GI tract is really essential to human life. You know, we, we don't think of food and water as being so critically important to human health because we just take it for granted. Like it's just, it's there. No, at least in the Western world, very few people are starving to death. Um, but in fact, we are organisms that rely 100% on food and water. If we don't get food and water regularly, we will die. And so our entire survival depends on it. Um, and the GI tract is where all of that is being processed, broken down and absorbed. And, um, but the GI tract is also a site where the body is preparing to take on those nutrients. Um, so even before the food reaches your stomach, as soon as you taste something sweet, on your tongue, a signal gets sent to your brain. Your brain actually starts, kind of commands the pancreas to start releasing insulin because it knows, or it thinks it knows that carbohydrates, sugar is coming. And so it prepares for that sugar to come. Now this gets confounded because you can have artificial sweeteners so you, you're fooling the brain. The brain thinks sugar is coming. It still causes that insulin release, but sugar isn't coming. Um, and uh, that can end up being problematic. But anyway, so if the GI tract is inflamed, it can result in malabsorption of some of those nutrients. It can result in, result in malabsorption of vitamins and minerals that are essential to health. Um, the leaky gut can allow things to leak into the bloodstream that should not be leaking into the bloodstream. Those things can cause even more inflammation. So now you got inflammation on top of inflammation um, and it can be problematic. And then, the, and then the gut actually talks to the brain in at least three very profoundly different ways. Um, you know, there's a nervous system that's connecting the gut uh, and the brain, uh, um, the parasympathetic nervous system or the vagus nerve. Um, the, the gut cells, you know, the cells lining your gut are actually secreting hormones and neuropeptides and other things. Again, preparing the body for these nutrients that are coming. Um, but also preparing the brain, telling the brain, like, I've had enough, I'm stuffed, don't eat anymore. So they're controlling feeding behaviors and other behaviors. Um, uh, and then the microbes within the gut 
are processing all of this food and they are secreting hormones and neurotransmitters and all sorts of things that are getting absorbed into our bloodstream and having widespread effects on our metabolism and brain and health and all sorts of things. So uh, it gets really complicated really fast. Yeah, totally. And some people like me love hearing about that and soaking up the information. Um, you know, originally my degree was in physics and that was what I was doing before I started getting more interested in nutrition. But some people just want a simple heuristic to get them through, you know, the rest of their lives. And I think that's why keto is so popular because they just have to keep the carbs low. And um, I wonder, do you... Do you, how deep do you go with people? Um, and, you know, something you see very often, and I, I quite like seeing because I think it's good belt and braces advice, is avoid sugar, flour, and seed oils. What do you think about that statement? And how do you go about it? Um, avoiding sugar, I think, is reasonably good advice. Um, I, I really don't see any benefits in sugar other than just the pure addiction, enjoyment, uh, pleasure of eating things that taste really delicious. Um, now, a lot of people who are eating a lot of sugar will listen to somebody like me and think I'm just like, I'm, I don't know, I'm crazy. I, I can't possibly know what, I, maybe my parents raised me on no sugar. No, I... I, so just to let people know, I used to definitely be addicted to all this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, um, I would eat sugar all the time as much as I wanted, because at the time that I was, grow, you know, kind of really thinking about nutrition, it was all about fat. As long as you avoided fat, you could have all the sugar you wanted and that was healthy. So uh, you could, you know, you could have candy, you could have entomins, low fat or no fat, you know, pastries and and those were a health food they really were um turned out that wasn't probably accurate well i i should insert the probably it definitely was not accurate and it was horrible for my health um and that's what ended up leading me to a low carb diet so no sugar i 100% agree with no flour that starts getting a little more complicated. <clears throat> As a rule of thumb, I don't eat flour. I haven't eaten flour on a regular basis for over 25 years. Um, so for me personally, that's a good motto. I adhere to it. Should everybody avoid flour, especially if we're talking whole grain kind of flour? I, I'm... I'm a little more reluctant to say every human being on the planet should avoid flour. Um, I don't feel 100% certain about that, but if I'm prescribing a low-carb or ketogenic diet, absolutely, they're going to avoid flour, and that's one of the things they cannot have. So that's just, you know, if we're trying a metabolic intervention is the way I like to think about it, they should not be having flour. I will be honest with you. The seed oil issue is the one that is the most controversial to me. Um, and it may not be to a lot of other people in the audience. I get it. I, I know that some people are 100% certain. It, you know, there are some people in the low-carb keto community and other communities will say seed oils are the cause of what ails us. Um, if we just got rid of seed oils, everybody would be healthy. I, you know, 
I am not 100% persuaded by that. I, I am persuaded enough that I do not eat seed oils myself. I will tell you that. I avoid seed oils like the plague. If I do have seed oils, like which would be in the context of going out to a restaurant, having something that has like salad dressing on it or, you know, was fried or something that I, I know that I'm, it's probably seed oils. Do I notice a difference in my health at all? Do I feel more inflamed? Do, do I notice like I gained two pounds in, in 24 hours and I usually don't gain two pounds in 24 hours? Um, I do, I do notice differences in those things. I notice much more weight gain the next day. I weigh myself every day, every morning, just to see what's going on. Um, it, I, I don't obsess about it. I don't really think too much about it, but um, so I usually know what's happening with my weight. Um, it's usually relatively stable unless I'm trying to build muscle and bulk up or go down. But um, what could be a stable weight can become unstable if I eat seed oil, if I have seed oils. So that's concerning. I'm aware of animal research. So these are rats and mice that it can impair metabolism. It can impair mitochondrial function in particular, which is something that is of particular interest to me. Um, and that is concerning, but those are mice and rats. Mice and rats eat different diets than humans. And uh, like if, if you look at a rat out in the wild or a mouse out in the wild, they are eating a somewhat different diet than a human being would be eating. And it's not clear that the way a dietary intervention or a, a dietary ingredient affects a mouse is going to be identical to the way it's going to affect a human. We also have to look at mouse studies. Mouse studies have all sorts of problems. Mice are nocturnal animals. They have a completely different circadian rhythm than we do. And yet laboratories studying them are often studying them during the day um, because that's when humans are awake. So you, it, it would be like studying a human being eating at 2 a.m. Uh, your physiology is completely messed up if you are if somebody's waking you up at 2 a.m. and trying to get you to eat. It, your hormone your hormonal systems are off. Your circadian rhythms are off, and all of that affects how we metabolize foods. Um, so I always take mouse studies, at least with a grain of salt. Um, and I don't, I have not seen compelling, convincing, randomized controlled trials of seed oil interventions. So seed oil or no seed oil with hard outcomes. Like if I give 5,000, if I take 5,000 people, half of them get seed oils, half of them don't get seed oils. Do we see a difference in the rates of cardiovascular disease? Do we see a difference in the rates of obesity? Do we see a difference in the rates of depression or schizophrenia? To the best of my knowledge, I could be wrong. And if any listeners can want to correct me, hit me up on Twitter and show me the articles. I am not aware of any good randomized controlled trials looking at a seed oil versus non-seed oil intervention to, with clear differences in health outcomes. That study would be easy enough to do. It would be costly, but it would be easy enough to do. So if the powers that be were really 100% persuaded that seed oils are toxic to human health, they should have done them. I mean, the powers that be do do studies like that. I mean, we have now banned trans fatty acids for that reason. Trans fats are toxic to human health. We have pretty good evidence of that. 
Um, so those are banned. Unfortunately, the, the, the issue with seed oils gets really complicated because people like Walter Willett, who is a leader in the nutrition field, is saying seed oils are great for everyone. Everybody, it will decrease risk of cardiovascular disease. Everybody should be eating seed oils. Don't worry about that ratio. Everybody talks about that ratio, omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids and all that. Don't worry about the ratio. Just eat seed oils. Eat, <laughs> eat them in abundance. They're great for you. So we've got people like him saying stuff like that. So we're a long way away from clarity on this issue is what I would say. <laughs> yeah, I would agree completely. I think um, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced, uh, you know, from a mechanistic point of view, there's, there's lots of um, good stuff on that, on the blog Hyperlipid. I don't know if you're into that blog at all. Peter Dobromilski has been on the podcast. He, um, if you really want to nerd out, uh, there's a thread called protons, which kind of takes the electron transport chain from, um, in, you know, the, the, the very basics all the way through. And I think once I read, when I read that for the first time, it, um, it, it became clear to me why seed oils aren't good for metabolism on that level. And then there's all sorts of other studies about 4-HNE and you know, the other toxic breakdown products that seem to exist, especially in the presence of glucose. You know, the list goes on and on. And like you say, lots of mouse studies, but it would be great to see a very clear intervention study that, um, that does what you just said. And so bring it on, I say. Um, something around health coaching, which um, another health coach asked me to ask you, and I had in my head as well was you must find skepticism from people suffering with uh, mental health conditions around the plausibility that, that changing their diet will help them. It's something that I find, you know, with even people who've come to me as coaching clients. Um, have you found much resistance and, and you know, <laughs> You know, do, do you think that means that we're not actually very good at identifying what motivates our feelings in the moment, which I know is quite a, so maybe a big separate question, but yeah, you know, what do you think about that? People sort of dismissing out of hand that diet might help or lifestyle in general, because I know you've said it's not just diet. It's a great question. And so that is one issue that I am particularly passionate about and I am focused on. So since I've been doing this work, I quickly recognize like people in the diet community are getting nowhere. Like it's just nobody's listening to people. Nobody's taking them seriously. Um, it, like we are not seeing these interventions in psychiatric hospitals. We are not seeing these interventions in mainstream psychiatry offices. That's my goal. So for the last 25 plus years, I've been educating mental health professionals, the traditional hardcore ones that come to Harvard conferences because they want the best education. I want to educate all of those people on how they can improve patients' symptoms using the interventions I talk about. So, the, so I am going about it in a different way than a lot of people in the diet community. 
some in the diet community may not like me for that and that's okay um <laughs> a lot of people don't like me for lots of reasons i suppose so uh that's okay i'm i'm okay with that but i i'll at least explain why i take the tack that i do so some in the keto community get frustrated with me or even upset with me because i i i explain things i like i didn't I didn't jump on the bandwagon of seed oils right away. Like the last explanation I gave, I gave a long winded explanation, which is really like, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, and that's frustrating for a lot of people because they want me to be part of the team. They want me to, you know, why are you, Chris Palmer, why aren't you joining us? Um, and I want to say, at least to the people in the low carb keto community, I am joining you, but I'm, I am, pitching my message not to you, I'm pitching my message to mainstream medicine. And it's a different message. Um, and so the first thing that I think sets me apart is I have not really, I have not presented the effectiveness of the ketogenic diet in its and the treatment of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or chronic depression, from the stance of um, a weight loss diet, definitely not from the stance of a weight loss diet. Like if you lose weight, that means you're eating healthy, and if healthy body, healthy mind. That's the way a lot of people think about it. That doesn't go very far in the mental health community because pe people in the mental health community are like I was seven, eight years ago. Like these are serious brain disorders. Like this, this isn't just like, oh, it would be nice if we could help patients lose weight. This is a very different issue. These are brain disorders that are ruining people's lives, that are driving people to kill themselves, that are driving people to drink or use drugs. I mean, People are tortured by these symptoms. This is not a silly laughing mat. Like this, this is not about you just you with your diet advice. So, so instead, I glommed on to the neurology field and the epilepsy field. And it's just so nice and fortunate for me that they were there ready and waiting with an abundance of neuroscience. And so when I talk about it, I always talk about it not as a diet, but as a metabolic intervention. And I say this metabolic intervention can stop seizures when medications fail to. That almost always gets people's attention. They're like, what? What are you talking about? That fad keto diet? I'm like, no, the medical ketogenic diet. I even sometimes insert the word medical ahead of time. That gets you more respect. Um, people, people take it more seriously if you call it a medical intervention. Um, so it's a medical ketogenic diet or it's a you know, metabolic intervention um, that stops seizures when everything else fails. So that gets people's attention. And then I quickly point out, oh, and by the way, we use epilepsy treatments every single day in tens of millions of people in psychiatry. We use them like candy, actually. Um, Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, Topamax, all the benzodiazepines, Neurontin, all of those things are anticonvulsants. Um, that really gets people's attention because if they are a mental health patient or if they're a family member or a clinician, they're like, 
oh, well, yeah, now that you're saying, like, yeah, now you're speaking my language. Yeah, we use those pills all the time. And sometimes they work. Um, and then I say, and yeah, and when those pill, pills fail to work, this diet can work. It can stop seizures. And I guess, and they're, like, I guess they're not necessarily even interested in uh, metabolic mechanisms, which they have in common or anything like that. It's just a very simple logical flow diagram with, a, so, with authority. So that's where I start. If they want the metabolic me mechanisms, I quickly go into that. And, you know, again, I, the neurology field has just handed me on a silver platter, like all of these great diagrams, mounds of research, you know, decades of research demonstrating this diet changes neurotransmitter systems. That gets people's attention. It changes hormones. It changes neuroinflammation. It decreases it. It changes the gut microbiome. And everybody knows that's related to mental disorders nowadays. It does all of these things that then get the attention of neuroscientists. So, so the really, you know, hopeful thing is that since I've been doing this, uh, there actually, to the best of my knowledge, has not been a clinician or psychiatrist. If I have at least 10 minutes to talk with them and kind of give them my spiel or talk, tell them the story and the science, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't met one that has come away saying, well, this is impossible. There's no way this diet could do it. The first line of resistance I get from everyone who's not part of the low-carb keto community, first line of resistance is, okay, Chris, you've got me convinced, but how the hell do you get someone to do this diet? That sounds really tough. I wouldn't be able to do this diet. So psychiatrists say this to me, I wouldn't be able to do that diet. How the hell are you getting a schizophrenic patient to do this diet? Um, and then that's where... The, the, the conversation has to shift to the art of this field and how do we get people? How do we persuade them, motivate them? How do you make the diet palatable? What information do people need when they're starting this diet? Like one piece of information I universally share with everyone is you're gonna be in hell for a week. Like just, just plan on hell for a week <laughs> and don't complain about how bad it is. I know it's gonna be bad. I'll listen to you complain, but just, you know, work with me here. Like, um, and, and then we talk about like, well, why would you do this? Why would you put yourself through hell? Why would you give up all the delicious foods that you love? Well, because you have this horrible illness that's ruining your life and our treatments aren't working. So you have a decision. Do you want to try something that has a chance of working? based on my clinical experience, but also based on a tremendous amount of neuroscience literature, a lot of clinical trials in the epilepsy field, there are strong reasons to believe this should be considered at least. Do you wanna try this intervention that can work when pills fail to work? Or do you just want to remain with your illness and disabled? That's your choice. And when I put it like that to most of my patients, they're like, okay, I'm with you. How, how, tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I need to do to get through this. Um, you know, in a way, sometimes I've said it lots of times before, I feel lucky that I had such acute symptoms 
which were cleared up by diet change because they do come back quite quickly um, if I deviate in some way. I feel like people who sleepwalk into middle-aged obesity and pre-diabetes or have subclinical uh, low mood or um, background anxiety or something, even presented with that choice, they might take the food. And of course, that's their choice. But the feedback mechanism isn't as strong. It's perverse that um, such, an, such a, an acute set of problems might actually be a good thing in that regard. Yeah. And so in the addiction field, we call that hitting rock bottom. You, you gotta you gotta hit rock bottom. So your circumstances have to be really dire and bad and catastrophic for you to give up an addictive substance. Um, and I think with dietary interventions, even even though I see the dietary intervention as a metabolic treatment, so I'm not necessarily saying. The people are, I know a lot of people in our community are saying, oh, well, they're addicted to all the sugar and carbs and everything else. I don't even need to go there. But giving up carbohydrates and sweets and all the other foods is like giving up an addiction. It is. It, there's just no way around it. It is a dramatic change. Reward centers are being affected. Your cravings are affected. It, it, you have withdrawal. You definitely have withdrawal when you give up carbohydrates and anybody who says you don't does has never done a low carb diet. Um, so uh, people feel weak, dizzy, lightheaded, they're craving, they're, I mean, they are having physical symptoms as a result of giving up carbohydrates acutely. Um, and so I, I use more of an addiction model to think about it. And, and it really is, it's it, people have to hit rock bottom. Um, and if they haven't hit rock bottom, if everybody's saying they're okay, oh, if they, if just they lost five pounds, they'd be good. Their doctor's telling them, well, you know, you can take a pill for that high blood pressure. Uh, if you can't lose weight, just, oh, you'll, well, I'll, I'll prescribe you a pill and it'll be as simple as that. And they're like, well, I can have my cake and eat it too, so to speak. And okay, I'll go ahead and just take the pill. Um, and then things have to get pretty dire for them to want to make a change. I know we've not got much time left, but I wonder if um, your mental health has improved on a low-carbohydrate diet. Yeah, that, that's the thing that actually set me off on using it in treatment-resistant depression is when I first went, I, you know, I went on it to, because I had metabolic syndrome. Um, and, uh, I had noticed, uh, you know, I had high blood pressure, prediabetes, uh, sky high triglycerides, really low HDL, uh, somewhat high LDL. And, uh, my doctors was pushing, increasingly pushing pills and wanting me to take pills. And so I, I did it and it worked for the metabolic syndrome that got better within a couple of months. But the thing that I noticed was a dramatic change in my mood, energy, confidence, sleep, other things. And that's what started me on the path of, gosh, I wonder what this would do for all these treatment-resistant patients who've tried dozens of medications, ECT, psychotherapy, all sorts of other things, and nothing's worked for them. I wonder what it would do for them. And sure enough, lo and behold, it worked for some of them. Not all of them, but it worked for some of them. And uh, 
Um, and that's what started me on the path. So was that um, doctor that recommended them? No, I, I had to do it on my own. Interestingly, it was funny because my, uh, so my primary care doctor, I kept asking him year after year. He's like, oh, your blood pressure is getting worse. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Diet and exercise. What diet? What exercise? Low fat diet. Go to the gym a couple, few times a week. I'm like, I'm already doing all of that. I'm eating a super low fat diet. I'm doing all of it. He kept telling me that same thing over and over again. Low fat diet, exercise. I'm like, I'm doing it. When I finally did it, you know, at the time it was the Atkins diet. That's what it was called. That's what I did. Um, so I come back in like three months later, everything, because he was like for you, almost forcing pills down my throat at that point. And I'm like, no, no, no. I want one last ditch effort. I just want to, I just want to try this crazy thing that I heard about. I, you know, I probably won't work, but I just want So I try the Atkins diet, go back in three months later. And I, he's like, how did you do it? And I said, I tried the Atkins diet. And he, <laughs> he leans in and whispers to me, that's the only way I can lose weight too. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, you jerk. Why didn't you tell, like, why didn't uh, you tell me to try the Atkins diet if you thought it could help me? And uh, So funny, but, but so sad. But again, that, that was a time when we did not have the studies in the literature. This was 25 years ago. We didn't have nearly as many studies in the literature as we do today. And so I think he too feared his losing his license. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a, there's a good grounding now, isn't there, in, in not just the diet itself, but paleoanthropology and the logic behind really trying to, you know, or understanding that if we do stuff that our ancient ancestors did, then that can be seen as likely healthy. Um, and, you know, that's, that's not what happened with my doctor. I went back and told her that all my problems had gone away because I changed what I eat. And she kind of smirked um, as if either she didn't believe me or I, um, I'd never had that serious a problem in the first place, which is a real shame. The only sort of consolation was that I knew she was pretty close to retirement. So, you know, bring, yeah. on, bring on the new, bring on the new batch, but the new you know, blood. There's, a, there's a comment in um, in the hyperlipid blog where um, they were talking, he was talking about gluten and casein, I believe it's a, a post on that. And someone in the comments had said that um, th they were breastfeeding uh, and their, uh, their baby had dreadful colic and that they came away from gluten and within 24 hours, the baby's colic had stopped. And when the, the woman was delighted, obviously, because that ruins people's lives too. Um, and she told her, I don't know if it was the health visitor or the midwife or whatever, who she was seeing, um, probably the health visitor by that stage, of course. Um, and the woman said, um, yeah, I mean, we all know that, but we, we're not allowed to tell mothers to come off healthy whole grains yeah so so i'm taking again those are the things that i have seen clearly for decades and i believe the only way we're really going to change the field is through science so that is my approach my approach was to dive ridiculously deeply into the science um and 
So I will, um, I will at least do a preview and, and let people know. So I've got this book coming out, Brain Energy. Brain Energy, yep. Com- comes out in November. And I can pre-order will, it, can't they? They can pre-order it, but I'm, I'm just going to come clean on what the book is. So the book is not a book about the ketogenic diet. I mentioned the ketogenic diet probably four times. Um, and it's in the introduction. So I think it will be a good way to sell the ketogenic diet, but it is not about the ketogenic diet. This book is about the broad question, what causes mental illness? And the thing that I will somewhat apologize for, or maybe whet your appetite with, for those inclined, it is a science book for better or worse. I am trying to change the entire mental health field. The only way we're gonna do that is through science. I can't say the keto diet has cured several of my patients. Everybody believe me, everybody start using the keto diet. It's great because if that's all I do, I'm gonna get the same reaction that you got from your GP. I'm gonna get the same reaction that everybody's getting. Yeah, we don't believe you. Yeah, you sound like a quack. Yeah, whatever. Um, So it is a science book and um, it is written for a lay audience. I really went out of my way to make it understandable, but it goes all the way to the level of the cell. You're gonna hear about mitochondria. You're gonna be read about, you know, lysosomes and autophagy and all sorts of things. Um, And if you really hate cell biology and you really hate science and you really hate detail like that, I hate to say this, but maybe just don't buy my book because <laughs> you probably will be just, you will probably be overwhelmed um, and or just won't like it. Um, but if you really want to understand how we're going to change the mental health field and why mental disorders are metabolic disorders and what that really means and how we can actually get people better, um, I want to arm everybody clinicians, researchers, the mental health field broadly, anybody from the diet community, anybody from the lifestyle fitness community who wants to be part of a solution to the mental health crisis that we have in the world today. Um, If you wanna be part of the solution, I want to arm you with an abundance, overwhelming amount of evidence that lines it up. There is just no way that this cannot at least be discussed. People want to disagree with it. People disagree with theories all the time. Einstein came out with his theory. Lots of people wrote it off. He's pretty brilliant. I don't think I'm anywhere close to Einstein. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I'm, I'm waiting for the people to disagree. But I believe I have just highlighted so many problems with the way the mental health field works today. I have pointed out an overwhelming preponderance of evidence that mental disorders are related to metabolism and mitochondria, um, that it will at least have to be openly discussed. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Also, thank you so much for, you know, doing this over the last 20 more years and biding your time until you felt like it was the right time because it feels like a, a real labor of love and, um, and, you know, I hope that you succeed soon in your major goal to 
change the mental health profession. I think it's, it's, it's ready to change. It just needs more people like you. Well, thank you. I, it is, I think that, you know, the mental health field, anybody who is part of it, anybody who works in it already knows we have a lot of room for improvement. Um, and I'm not trying to tear down what works in the mental health field. I'm trying to explain and understand why do current treatments work? Why do our current approaches make sense? And why are we failing far too many people? What else could we do? What could we do differently? How could we think about things differently? Yeah, this so, is something This is something that I was, sorry to interrupt you, but this is something that I really did want to make sure was mentioned clearly that was implied by you saying that, you know, the ketogenic diet isn't some sort of panacea. But I do want to say on the record that uh, psychiatric drugs can be life-saving and are extremely useful and are well used by uh, responsible doctors all over the world. Some drugs for some people, abs and some, yes, absolutely. I, I have a mixed review of psychiatric drugs um, and that will come out in the book. Um, okay. we, we know that, so, so my overarching premise, which you can read on the book, you know, description is mental disorders or metabolic disorders. And yet we know that many psychiatric drugs, antipsychotics and mood stabilizers in particular cause metabolic problems. They cause obesity, they cause diabetes, they cause premature death. And so I have done my best to explain how to understand that. Why would a medication that harms metabolism be helpful if the cause of mental illness is a metabolic problem? Um, but it comes, so I feel pretty confident that I can explain that in a very understandable way. But again, you have to go down to the level of the cell and get into cell biology and all this other crap. Um, so the book will take you on that journey. So you'll understand precisely why those medications can be helpful in the short run, but also why those medications might actually be keeping people ill in the long run. And you know, there was just a New York Times magazine piece uh, the other day um, that really highlighted this issue. Patients who are taking antipsychotic medications are sick and tired of the status quo. They aren't getting better. They're getting fatter. They're dying earlier and earlier deaths. They feel like shit. They are zombies. Um, and they are frustrated. Um, the New York Times piece was a very long article on this issue. The World Health Organization has recently come out kind of in support of, yeah, these psychiatric medications are crap. <laughs> they're, 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 they're not helping and they might even be harming. And what are we really doing? spending all this money on these medications and people aren't getting better like maybe we should just let people be 
just let them be crazy. Maybe being crazy and thin is better than being crazy and fat and sedated and a zombie. Um, so these debates are already happening at, at, at organizations like the World Health Organization. Everybody is fed up with our lack of answers and our lack of ability to help people with mental disorders. Everybody is fed up, including mental health clinicians. They are equally, they are equally frustrated. Nobody goes into mental health because they want to be a pill pusher. People go into mental health because they actually really deeply, genuinely care about human beings and human suffering. They desperately want to help people get better too. I want to give them scientific answers that will enable them to better help people. And one of those solutions will be something like the ketogenic diet. Again, not a panacea, not for everybody, but once you understand the biology and the mechanisms and the science, something like the ketogenic diet is a no-brainer. Um, and oh, and lo and behold, gosh, we can help people lose that weight that they gained. We can help people feel better. They can get keto clarity. Um, they, you know, and guess what? It really doesn't cost too much. It's a lot cheaper than five or 10 psychiatric medications. Um, if we look at what insurance companies are paying for those medications, gosh, we could afford a dietitian, a health and wellness coach, a, a clinician to spend a lot of hours with this patient, coaching them on how to do these lifestyle interventions, um, and we would still save money. And guess what? We would save money like threefold because we would save direct costs. These interventions are cheaper than pills. The person is actually going to get better, be healthier, have fewer medical problems, fewer med they're not going to, they'll be less likely to have diabetes, less likely to have obesity and all the medical complications that go into that, that we, the system have to pay for. And God forbid, they might get better enough that they actually get a job and start <laughs> paying taxes. Oh my gosh. We could have tax-paying citizens who desperately want to be tax-paying citizens. They want to have dignity and self-respect. They don't want hallucinations. They don't want crippling depression. They just want to be normal. And we could help them do that with more effective interventions. So this is like a win-win-win on so many counts. Now, the pharmaceutical industry is not going to be a winner here. I'm just going <laughs> to say, there, I'm sorry that somebody is going to have to lose in all of these wins, but that's why we need a grassroots movement because pharmaceutical industry and the billions of dollars that go into pharmaceuticals, if they really understand the science and, oh my God, this Chris Palmer is now a threat. <laughs> um, they're going to come after me. I'm going to have a bullseye on my head and back. And, uh, um, and, and they'll come after me in, in, in terms of academic assassination. They will just try, try to discredit Chris Palmer. Chris Palmer is crazy. He's a quack. He's, he is being you know irresponsible by, by espousing these ideas, whatever. Um, and, uh, and there are powerful treatment systems in place that don't want to change. 
it, it's gonna it, it takes change you know clinicians are gonna have to learn new skill sets um hospitals are gonna have to develop new treatment programs and uh all of that is change and money and that's why i think we're gonna need a grassroots movement so uh for anybody who wants to join a grassroots movement and really change the mental health field for the better stay tuned coming november uh it is coming uh, and it, maybe it'll die out in a month, but <laughs> I'm hoping not. I'm hoping not. I'm hoping I'll have someone join me and, uh, and we will do our best to try to change the world. Well, I'll do whatever small part I can to join you and hope to see the world that you described before you went into the, the darkness that is the machinations of the pharmaceutical industry. But let's leave it on the positive note that it will happen and it will start in November. And I'll certainly be sharing this far and wide and telling all my doctor uh, friends and acquaintances about it. So um, maybe we can catch up again in a, in a, in a year or two about uh, how things have changed. Sounds great. All right. Thanks again, Chris. And what was the all name right. of the book? Brain Energy. Brain Energy. Okay, everyone go out and pre-order it. Thanks again, Thank Chris. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks. See you next time.